electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. The fallout from Silicon Valley Bank, far from over. Regulators plan to try once again to auction off SVB after they were unable to do so. I think that Silicon Valley is a unique outlier. They did everything wrong. There's so much 08 PTSD. Yes still among market participants. They were not a real bank. In retrospect, Credit Suisse becomes the latest crisis for the banking sector. A big sell-off in Europe, and that's continuing here in the U.S. First Republic, as 11 big banks team up for a $30 billion deposit rescue. When you start talking about banks failing, and it's more than one, it's only human nature to think right away to the worst. Right. Think about who could be next, and if not in a bank, where else? Yeah. And that's kind of where we've been the last handful of days. And good evening, everybody. Welcome to the CNBC Special Hour. I'm Eamon Javers. Jim Cramer has the night off tonight. And tonight, investors caught in the crosshairs. Major indexes pulling back today, dominated by lingering jitters over First Republic Bank and the fallout of the SVB collapse. But a late-day surge in Credit Suisse as reports reveal UBS is in talks to acquire all or part of the bank on the brink. Could it be good news for the overall market? Sectors and stocks on the precipice as the market asks, what's next? From Wall Street to Washington, there's there's an undercurrent of fear as problems that seemed manageable suddenly feel like they could escalate out of control. Regional banks meaningfully weighing down the Dow today with the S&P tumbling uh, and regional with the S&P regional banking ETF tumbling more than 14 percent this week. Tonight, as regulators try to stem the fears of contagion, we'll break down what it means for you and your money. We're talking to some of the best investors and thinkers on these issues to help you look ahead to next week. Could geopolitical risk be the next escalation risk? U.S. and Russian military forces coming into direct physical and hostile contact for the first time since the start of the war in Ukraine. Plus, Meta announcing it's laying off 10,000 employees this week. You might think tech layoffs are an accelerating risk, yet the stock is soaring. What the flight to tech means for the overall market. And forget about black swans that no one sees coming. What about the gray swans, those crises that everybody kind of knows is out there, how to spot the next big market event and trade it before it takes you by surprise. 
But first, back to the markets. Our own Mike Santoli joins us now to explain what exactly happened during this turbulent week. Mike, do you think this UBS announcement that we just saw in the past hour or so is going to keep things under control through the weekend? I do think it's welcome, Eamon. So it's another uh, attempted support effort from some of the at-risk institutions. Uh, The issue is the psychology is very fragile around all this. There's really no definitive way to say that a banking crisis or uh, a crisis of confidence uh, in the financial system is is completely done until you've kind of had a few weeks of all clear. So I do think that's what's been driving the market action. Very apprehensive. S&P down 1.1% today. Uh, As you mentioned, the regional bank stocks at the center of that. Uh, And it's, it's interesting that the overall market did not actually fall all around it. In other words, we're up 1.4% in the S&P for the week, but it's almost entirely because of the types of companies that are the farthest away from banks, which are the large tech companies that generate a lot of cash. NASDAQ 100 was up almost 6% on the week. As bond yields got crushed, people started to price in a higher risk of recession. Oil prices breaking through, uh, you know, recent lows going back more than a year. So all this stuff baked together is we're on alert for a worse economic outcome. We're not quite sure that we've uh, created a fire break uh, around what's been happening in the banking system. And Fridays are no real relief because a lot of the drama has tended to happen over weekends. Yeah, a lot of drama over the weekends, particularly when you're dealing with bank failures. Mike, stick around. Let's continue this conversation and bring in Joe Fami uh, of Zor Capital and Delano Sapporo of New Street Advisors. He's also a CNBC contributor. Guys, we're going to be hitting this theme throughout the hour tonight. Problems that are more or less under control now, but markets worry they could escalate and get out of control in the future. As you look around the markets tonight, what's your biggest escalation worry going into next week, Joe? Uh, I think the market, the Fed is what we're going to look forward to uh, coming into this week, because coming into this year, the biggest question on on investors' minds was when was the Fed going to uh, end their rate hiking cycle? And the ongoing belief was that it was going to be when inflation came down and economic reports showed that the economy was slowing down. But last week, threw a wrench into all that with Silicon Valley Bank. So now the Fed has to consider if all of their rate hikes could potentially uh, be be uh, lead to problems in the banking system. So I think we need to be defensive and wait for clarity as far as for next week. Wait to hear what we hear from the Fed and any ongoing news from the financial sector. Delano, same question to you as you look into next week. Is there escalation risk out there on your horizon? Yeah, I think think what Joe mentioned with the Fed and what's going to happen next week, I think that's one aspect of it. Um, I think if you look at, you know, also the earnings um, estimates that we have on the S&P and, and different areas for different companies, those estimates were, were, although not high, too high, the projections may have to be lower down or re-rated down a little bit. If you now look at what was going on within the banking system, I think we have, you know, at some point regulation coming to get tighter. I think you have the banks that will be a little bit uh, more risk averse when it comes to lending. And I think that ultimately could potentially slow down our economy. You saw Goldman uh, lower their projections on GDP um, and other, you know, other banks doing the same. And so I think that's another risk that investors have to look at. I still do anticipate a 25 bips uh, rate hike. Um, um, and I think that, you know, we've been rallying, as Mike was saying, in the tech sector because of that skew away from, you know, the bank. So those are areas also for investors to look at. Mike, go ahead, jump in here with, with a question. Yeah, Joe, I, I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on whether we can continue to have this kind of selective market where you do have a lot of the growth stocks that have kind of their own stories and they had a tough year last year can continue to really buffer what's going on in the, in the rest of the market because of all the macro stress. Yeah, this week, for sure, the biggest question was on investors' minds is what the Fed is going to do and 
uh, also considering uh, rebalancing how to rebalance people's portfolios. And as you mentioned earlier, the S&P was up 1.4 percent, but the Nasdaq was up 4.4 percent. So as I always like to say, it's not the news, it's the market's reaction to the news. And market participants were repricing in possibly a quicker uh, end to this rate hiking cycle. So uh, the Nasdaq had that shift over because, number one, they have less exposure to financials. Number two is that they're more uh, stable. A lot of people like them kind of as a defensive sector uh, as far as the big mega cap tech with more stable, reliable earnings. And also because of the drop in interest rates, money tends to rotate into tech. Whether that can hold up, We'll see. But for sure, the markets are moving quickly um, and, and we just have to wait to see what the Fed says next week. For sure. And on that score, Delano, um, you know, I, I keep saying this week, the last few days, that Jay Powell at the Fed probably really hopes for the circumstances under which he can raise rates by a quarter point, kind of make it seem like this is all going according to plan. There's nothing they need to react to urgently in the financial system. We really don't know if that's going to be the case. I mean, we don't want to be alarmist about it, but we have a few days before we see if that's, uh, if that's the way it goes. Um, do you think that the stakes are very high as to whether it's a quarter point or it's nothing or what they say thereafter? Because we've already gone from zero to almost four and three quarters percent uh, in a year's time. Uh, so it wouldn't seem like what they do next week would be the make or break. Yeah, it wouldn't, it wouldn't seem like that. I do think uh, as the Fed has a tough task here, right? And, and as you mentioned, the, the expectation of the market, if you're looking at yields dropping, their expectation is that yields are, are going to, the rates are going to go down here, you know, relatively soon, right? And so I think they have a tough task because on the one end, you're still battling inflation that although the trend is going downwards, um, it's still high in different areas, right? And that's, it's still running hot in different areas. And that's been their main thing that they're combating. We still have an unemployment rate that's at 3.6%, which, you know, if you look at, you know, Severson's falling off and whatnot in the summer, that may start to rise a little bit. So it is a tough, a tough, tough thing for the Fed to battle. But I do think, you know, if you're looking at the communication that's been delivered to us so far, um, inflation being number one on, on the Fed's mind, that's going to be the way they look at things. Um, and then to give the guidance on, on going forward. I think consumers right now are, are still being hurt on the inflation side. I think that's going to be the area that they pick. And Joe, you, you've mentioned you, you really counsel people should wait and see what the Fed does. And I assume wait and see how the market reacts to it. What would be your sort of game plan in terms of approaching that? Are you looking for, you know, the market to have a little bit of a, of a panic or some kind of a, of a big retreat that you would take advantage of? Or do you want to see the market shrug it off? I'd like to see it shrug, shrug, shrug it off. To Delano's point, the Fed has a big challenge right now. Do you fight inflation and do you, do you stick with that, as Powell said in his recent testimony to Congress, or do you have to deal with this potentially uh, problem with the banking system? And that's a big challenge right now. So we'll have to see if it's a dovish hike or a hawkish pause, as people have been saying. And I want to see the reaction to the news. But what I'm specifically, from a growth manager's perspective, what I'm going to be paying attention to are the stocks that are holding up well. For example, semiconductors have seen, seen were very strong this week. I'm going to pay attention to the ones that can withstand this downturn because eventually the market's going to price in a lot of this bad news and start to look forward. Delano, some of this is the measure of the man, though, right? I mean, this is a very personal decision. It's about courage 
or fear for the Fed. And Jay Powell, he can show courage here and continue on fighting inflation, or he can signal that he sees fear uh, and, and scale back on these rate hikes. Either way, though, he runs the risk of spooking the market. So in his sort of heart of hearts, in his soul, where do you think he's going to go? You know, and that's a great question. I think, you know, we did, you know, the, the system, the banking system got a lot of reassurance this week, right? We saw uh, on the credit suite side, there's different talks and rumors about, you know, maybe a takeover there. And then at the First Republic side, all the major banks coming in and providing liquidity. And they're also looking at potential uh, uh, private sale for some shares to raise capital as well. So there was a little bit to assure the banking system and to assure, you know, consumers and, and obviously the U.S. In, in the banking system to keep that reassurance. So I think, you know, when he would take all that, all that into account, um, it's going to be going back to the main focus that's been so far over the last 12 months, which has been fighting inflation. Um, I don't think they've seen enough yet um, to say that we can start pausing or start pivoting. Um, and so I think that's where it goes, um, you know, but it's still to be seen. Delano, thank you so much. Joe, also to you. And Mike, of course, thank you to you. Have a great weekend, everybody. And we are just getting started on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Tonight, global tensions are whitening knuckles across every sector. Is one little app lighting the fuse? Plus, a walk through the valley. Continuing coverage of the SVB fallout. And the hot topic of a Cold War in tech. Winners and losers revealed when we return on CNBC. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. And welcome back. Tensions flaring between the U.S. and Russia this week after an American military drone was intercepted by a Russian fighter jet over the Black Sea. The Department of Defense released this video showing the moment the drone was taken down by the fighter jet. Now, 
You can see here the Russians trying to smother the drone by discharging fuel and then crashing into that drone's propeller. The incident is putting a bigger spotlight on the risk of escalation between the U.S. and Russia, which is something the U.S. has been anxious to avoid since that war began a year ago. And here to discuss all of it with us is Dmitry Alperovich, the co-founder of CrowdStrike and the chairman at Silverado Policy Accelerator. Dmitry, thanks so much for being here. You're absolutely the right guy to talk to on this tonight. In the Cold War, there was something called the escalation ladder that we all worried about, right? One school of thought was you should just never step foot on the first rung of that escalation ladder because it's really hard not to go all the way to the top, and that just could be really bad. So you look at this tonight, you look at all the risks out there in the world. Does it feel like we just stepped on the first rung of that escalation ladder? Well, I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that what happened here was impact to a piece of metal. There was no pilot in that drone, of course, it's unmanned. So we lost a piece of equipment, an expensive piece of equipment, but no loss of life uh, for Americans, which definitely would be a major escalation. What about the flip side, though? I mean, the Russians crashed into that drone. It's possible the Russian jet could have crashed and we could have had a loss of Russian life. Uh, well, that would have been uh, the ones causing it. So I think going forward, we actually may have uh, actually reduced the risk because they're much less likely to do these escalatory measures. They've actually been uh, very forward lenient saying this was not intentional. And I think that's a good sign showing that they don't want to get into a conflict with U.S. or NATO. So as you look at this right now, you feel like the, the Ukrainian situation is more or less under control as we sit here on Friday night? I think it's more manageable, but this uh, international criminal court decision to indict uh, President Putin for war crimes, which he absolutely did commit in Ukraine, is committing them now, could make things more dangerous because, let's be clear, President Putin is not showing up in The Hague to stand trial while he's president of Russia. And that gives him incentive to continue to hold on to power. In your view, should the United States continue to fly those drone missions in the Black Sea, near Crimea, in the area where the Russians have said it's more or less a no-fly zone? We don't acknowledge that. Should we still be there? Absolutely. This is international keep waters. Going. We have to keep going. We can't recognize the fact that they just declare a chunk of international airspace unflyable. They did that for civilian aircraft, but we are certainly not going to abide by that. Even with our transponders off and heading toward Crimea, heading toward the Russian We have full mainland. right to be there, and we have full right to collect intelligence on what's happening in Ukraine. Let me ask you about the banks, because that's the other big fear of contagion and escalation. You're an investor. You're a thinker. You look at what the federal government did this week. Do you think that escalation risk is back in the can, or do you think we have a problem going into next I think week. we have a huge issue right now. I've been dealing with this all week long with my startups that I'm a board member of. And the problem we have right now is that no one knows which banks are safe. And let's be clear. Community banks in this country and credit unions are responsible for 50% of all lending, 80% of commercial real estate lending, 45% of consumer lending. We can't let them go under and just have everyone move their money to the big four but banks. can we afford to insure all the deposits? That's well, a huge number. It's a $30 trillion, right? Our debt is $30 trillion. I mean, even in Washington, that's a lot of money. That, that's a lot of money. But on the other hand, I don't know how you can tell farmers, dental offices, dry cleaners that you have just bailed out rich people in Silicon Valley. But if their community bank goes under, you will not bail them out. I isn't think that's the, a really hard call. Isn't the risk if you backstop all those deposits, though, hey, everyone is going to be taking that kind of risk. Farmers are going to find some kind of agricultural risk to get into. Silicon Valley is going to find Silicon Valley risk to get into. You are saying the federal government backstops all these deposits, so the bankers are going to go hog wild on risk. Eamon, that's exactly right, because the moral hazard issue here is very real, because if everyone knows that their deposits are safe and the bankers know uh, those deposits are safe, bank runs are over, which may sound great, but that means the bankers are going to take more risks like S Silicon Valley Bank did, and the government's going to have to bail them out. And who pays for that? The taxpayer. Right. 
I mean, so far, the administration has been anxious to say no taxpayer money in this deal. Republicans have been very critical of that on the Hill. They say, well, that's not quite exactly true. Ultimately, it will come back to the taxpayer. Do you think the taxpayer is going to be on the hook in the future for the next big bank run? Well, if you're going to do $30 trillion of insurance, there's no way that the banks can pay for it. Or we're going to be left with very few banks because community banks won't be able to afford it. So right now, FDIC insurance is paid for the banks. But the, the government is the backstop, and you're going to have that situation going forward. So we're talking about two very different issues here, right? The risk of escalation in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, the risk of, of escalation uh, in, a, in a bank run scenario. Which one of those are you going to worry about more over the weekend? Well, the bank run scenario, absolutely, because this is not over more by More so means. than Russia. Absolutely, because you've got the first Republican bank issue. If that fails, and I don't think the regulators will allow it to fail, uh, they understand the importance of that. But this can spread so quickly. And right now, there's no confidence. I'm talking to CEOs all the time. They know that, uh, or they don't know, I should say, whether they can keep their money safely in any bank that's not a big four bank. And that's a real problem. Just before we came on the air, we got the news that UBS, the other big Swiss bank, might be investing uh, in Credit Suisse, maybe acquiring Credit Suisse. Is that going to calm things, in your view? No, because everyone knows that no. Credit Suisse is a separate issue. It's been a trouble bank uh, for a long time. Uh, so it doesn't hurt to bail it out. Frankly, you know, the last thing we need is another bank failure right now. But the issues with First Republic and other banks that are under pressure right now, with all these deposits going to J.P. Morgan, going to Bank of America, that has not ended. Here's my question about the Swiss banks in particular. Right? There's a lot of money in Switzerland because of Swiss bank secrecy that can't leave. Right. A lot of oligarchs, bad guys around the world have accounts in those Swiss banks. UBS certainly knows what it's getting into if they're going to buy into that. But why didn't UBS just sit on the sidelines, wait for Credit Suisse to collapse and then come in and say, we're going to get all those deposits anyway, because those people, those clients can't move their money out of Switzerland. Well, all these big can't go back to their home countries where they have to pay taxes. I know. But all these big, big banks know that uh, banking is a confidence game, that if you allow big banks to fail, uh, the public will lose confidence in all the banks. And you can't let that happen. Dimitri, wide-ranging, excellent stuff. Really appreciate your analysis tonight. Thank you. And coming up, take a look at Bitcoin surging about 36% since last Friday for its best week since January of 2021, now at its highest level since last June. Crypto-linked stocks coming along for the ride. Marathon Digital, Coinbase, and MicroStrategy all seeing huge gains this week as some consider altcoins clear winners of the U.S. banking crisis. So is crypto really a safe haven? Really? We're going to debate it next. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
And welcome back. Silicon Valley Bank's demise came fast and furious last weekend and into the weekend. Uh, No one was tracking every development of the story just as closely as the companies that had their money parked at SVB and were waiting to find out if they'd ever see their cash again. My next guest knows all too well what it felt like to be on that roller coaster. Vanessa Pham is the co-founder of Amsam, an emerging Asian pantry staple company. SVB was Amsam's sole banking partner. Vanessa, what in the world was this week like for you? Oh my goodness, an absolute <laughs> roller coaster. Um, yeah. Now I'm smiling because we're on the other side, but I can tell you Thursday, Friday, Saturday, all the way through Sunday, late afternoon, early evening were some of the, the hardest days of running the company. We had very little clarity on what would happen in the future, and we had to plan for every scenario, including the worst case. When did you first know you had a problem? Thursday morning, um, I was actually at an industry conference um, in the food industry, and there was starting to be founders talking about pulling out their funds, their investors telling them they should pull out their funds quickly, and that's where it started to escalate. So Thursday morning, you get that sinking feeling. How long was it before you felt totally reassured that your money was going to be safe? Monday night when the wire had cleared. Um, Even when the news came out on Sunday, I was like still holding my breath a bit. And so how do you feel now? I mean, are you confident in your new bank? Are you confident in the banking system overall? I'm still feeling a little on edge. Absolutely. I think overall, I I also have this feeling that I don't have the luxury of worrying so much. I have to operate the business, right? Small companies like mine, we have a team of nine. We are running full steam ahead on launching new product lines, launching a new retailers. We can't really be worrying at times about these, you know, more existential systemic issues. And so I'm trying to stay appraised and make sure I'm making prudent decisions for my business. And I have to just keep moving forward. Yeah, a little on edge. I think a lot of people are feeling that way. Vanessa, thanks so much for sharing your experiences with us tonight. And check out Bitcoin up 36% over the past week. That's despite the closure of crypto-focused banks and Silvergate and Signature. Is this just a short-term pop, or has the recent banking crisis proven crypto's value? Let's bring in Jacob Silverman, contributing editor at The New Republic, and Meltem Demir, Demiros, uh, chief strategy officer at CoinShares. Let's start with you, Jacob. I mean, this idea that people are rushing to safety in crypto maybe boggles the mind a little bit. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I think it's unlikely to be a place of of long-term safety. I mean, I think if you're talking about the recent run-up in crypto, especially in Bitcoin, I mean, just this week, uh, Tether printed $3 billion worth of Tether. It's one of their biggest printings ever. Uh, TUSD went up about a billion dollars in market cap over the last couple of weeks. Um, So Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this is actually being driven by offshore money going into these offshore stablecoins that are then being used to buy crypto. Um, You also had Binance putting about a billion dollars worth of BUSD into crypto. So there are definitely some big players moving, but if they don't have access to mainstream uh, finance to fiat dollars, I don't know what they're going to do long term. Meltem, I don't want to be too cynical here, but you do think about some of these crypto companies that were concerned about the collapse of SVB and their loss of access to fiat currency, right? And you wonder, well, if crypto is so great, why aren't they just using crypto? 
Well, here's the here's the great thing. Banks are still banking crypto companies. The reason that Silvergate and Signature, the two banks that were shut down, um, were so important to the crypto ecosystem is because they made crypto compatible with the dollar banking system and vice versa. So they both had private internal networks that allowed for 24-7, 365, near real-time instant settlement for crypto for dollars. And so that was a really important driver of liquidity, particularly on the trading side of the crypto ecosystem. Now, as Jacob alluded to, some of that gap is being filled by stable coins and stable coins are really important because they allow you to settle dollars with finality in real time against crypto, which again, what we're seeing here is a fundamental technological incompatibility between bank wires, which take two to three days to clear, move quite slowly, and cryptocurrencies, but it's very important. Crypto companies still have bank access, firms still have access. It's just this real-time bank facility to access dollars in real time. That's been severely curtailed, which is why we're seeing so much movement towards stable coins and more on-chain financial products and services. So, so let me ask you about that, Meltem. So in your view, as you look at this, does this flight to safety in crypto, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I think we are seeing a, a lot of interest in crypto, um, notably Uniswap, which is a decentralized exchange that is fully on chain, trades only crypto to crypto, had its highest volume day ever last Friday. So that to me is an indicator. It's a lot of internal crypto transactions. There is a lot of retail interest. We aren't seeing a huge amount of non-crypto institutional interest. But you have to remember both tech and crypto, big hot ball of money. When money moves, it moves fast. Velocity is really high. And this is all digital banking done via phone, done via screen with the click of a button. So this velocity, as it continues to increase and spread to other industries, I think we'll continue to see this volatility when it comes to banking and bank stability. Jacob, I like that turn of phrase from Melton, big hot ball of money. Uh, Where is that big hot ball of money going to go next week? You think this rally is going to carry into next week or is this just a short term thing? I think it's short-term, whether your short-term includes next week, uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think we are seeing so much of this go offshore and be, uh, you know, just in the realm of speculation. Retail volume among just everyday traders has been declining since May 2021 when it peaked. And you might see some hot spots here and there uh, of more interest, but, you know, if even... Uh, it, it, if we had so many failures over the last year culminating in FTX, I don't see how regular consumers can really get excited about crypto again. Melton, go ahead. I mean, first of all, I just want to say retail traders are in the market. Coinbase, Binance are are doing record numbers um, for the for the last six months. They've had suppressed volume. We're seeing a lot of interest now. Look, I fully agree. I think the environment is still risk off. And I'll be very candid. I've worked in this industry for nine years, and we have a huge reputational issue. There has been a lot of damage done, and rightfully so. I think people are wary of crypto. But when it comes to Bitcoin in particular, I think the value of Bitcoin has never been clearer in the current economic environment and in the current banking environment. 25% of American adults, according to some research, own Bitcoin. 300 million people around the world have exposure to Bitcoin or have used Bitcoin. So but I think Bitcoin's these numbers, going to continue again, to grow, let me, let me just jump in there. If Bitcoin is yeah, going to sure. continue to grow, how do you convince people who are out there who saw the FTX headlines, see the meltdown, they see Sam Bankman free on an island somewhere with billions of dollars, it all looks very scary. How do you convince those people who aren't in Bitcoin now to jump in? That's what you need for growth, right? Well, look, Sam Bankman-Fried is not Bitcoin and vice versa. That's very yeah. important to distinguish. 
Many industries have had bad actors, whether it's tech, whether it's pharma, right? This is not a problem that's unique to crypto. And again, there are many different ways to get exposure to the crypto space. Coinbase is a regulated publicly listed company. My company, CoinShares, is a publicly listed regulated company that provides transparency. So again, there are a lot of choices, a lot of different ways for people to get exposure. And I just want to make it clear, one person does not represent our industry. Bitcoin has no leaders, has no rulers, and there are a lot of different ways that people can interact with it. It's going to take time. I don't disagree with you, but we just need to let things take their course. And I don't think there is a rallying cry. It's people learning, getting interested, and then taking the risk and jumping into Bitcoin if they feel it's appropriate for them. And a lot of people are starting to make that choice. Let me get to Jacob on this one. Jacob, we've got a couple of seconds left. Uh, In those couple of seconds, fix crypto's image problem for me. What do they need to do? Turn things around. Well, I think they need to take care of some of the fraudsters in their midst. And we can argue whether or crypto has a sort of a criminal or fraudulent element more than any other industry, but it's certainly there. And, you know, it's an, the industry has a reputational problem. I also think even the regulated entities like Coinbase need to find out how to be profitable. Coinbase is held up as the regulated crypto exchange, but it's losing so much money each quarter. So I think we need to you know, you need to find ways to market as a secure, stable place for people. And a lot of everyday folks just don't see it that way at the moment. Solve an entire industry's problems in 30 seconds or less. Guys, <laughs> fascinating discussion. Really appreciate your time. Meltem and Jacob, thank you for being here on this Friday night. And don't go anywhere. There's much more ahead on this CNBC special, Taking Stock. Coming up, with banks mired in questions, will tech play an unfamiliar role of safe haven? Plus, taking flight. Why the gray swan needs to be in your lexicon. When we return on CNBC. And welcome back, everybody. Let's get another check on how the markets ended the week. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all ended the day lower, but only the Dow finished the week in the red. The S&P managing to eke out a game, while the NASDAQ soared a whopping 4.5%. Regional banks were some of the worst performers of the week, with the ETF ending down 14% amid the continued fears around the SVB bailout. Now, that ETF led to the downside by First Republic Bank, losing 73% of its value in just one week. 73%. Financials were the second worst performing S&P sector for the week after energy. But while the concerns around the banking system dragged down the financial sector, they buoyed tech and communication services with the prospect of a Fed rate pause giving new optimism to tech investors. So let's dig into those moves with our own Steve Kovac. Steve, what is going on here? Oh, man. I mean, it's a big week for big tech stocks. So let's go over the scorecard for the week here. This is a really interesting one. NASDAQ 100 and the Qs both up 6% for the week. Now compare that to the S&P 500, which was up 1.5% for the last five days. That's the best week for the NASDAQ 100 since November of last year. Now some individual names to go over for this week. Microsoft is the winner of the bunch up 12%, Meta up 11%, Google up 12%, Amazon 8%. And then it even hit some of the smaller cap names in software and cloud. We have Salesforce up 7% for the week and Adobe up 8% for the week, for example. And now there are a few things uh, to explain why this happened. First of all, we know big tech had a horrible year last year with many of these names losing, you know, 10 to 20% on the year. And since, but since then, we've seen them move towards cost cutting and other efficiencies. Meta 
Meta just this week laying off another 11,000 workers, which helped boost the stock quite a bit. And then these names also look safe amid the volatility we've been seeing after handing investors basically what they wanted and been asking for these last several months. And now many of these names, especially Microsoft, were also top picks going into these years from several big key analyst firms. And more recently, what we saw over the last week and a half or so, there's a better chance, like you said, the Fed will slow down raising rates. And we all know that's a great environment for tech growth, Eamon. Steve, you say efficiencies. I say casualties when you look at some of these layoffs, right? I mean, that's the other way to look at it. You know, in our last block, we had a discussion about crypto and this weird sort of flight to safety that we saw in crypto during this week when the banks were hanging in the balance. I wonder if that's sort of the same dynamic that's playing out uh, in tech. You know, you see these layoffs, you see concerns, maybe meta this, maybe meta that. Uh, Is it just sort of a reflexive thing of let's go back to some things that we know when there's this air of uncertainty out there in the banking sector? Yeah, it's part of that, too. And you can also argue, Eamon, that, you know, tech took its medicine already. It heard loud and clear what investors wanted to see as we head into this high interest rate environment. And they did it. Again, let's go back to Meta, cutting 11,000 jobs on top of the 10,000 they cut last fall. Also, just streamlining and flattening the organization, as we saw Mark Zuckerberg tell employees this week in that big memo. And so they're basically on a platter, Eamon, saying, "Okay, we heard you loud and clear. We're going to give you everything you want. And they're being rewarded, Meta especially this year, uh, in their stock price. And, and Google as well. We're seeing it with Alphabet. There are a couple other things, too. Social media stocks were on the rise this week, too, because of all those TikTok ban headlines that we've been getting. If TikTok goes away, Google stands to benefit quite a bit because of YouTube shorts and, of course, Meta and Snap as well. Yeah. So the smart play here is to get ahead of that layoff curve for everybody in business. Just don't tell our boss about yes. that, Steve Kovac. Thank you for being here tonight. And coming up, pressure is mounting on J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon as a lawyer argues in court that he knew about Epstein's crimes, what it means for one of the most powerful titans of Wall Street. Coming up next. Welcome back. In a courtroom in New York last night, attorneys for the U.S. Virgin Islands targeted J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon as directly as we have seen so far in their case, alleging that the bank aided Jeffrey Epstein in his decades of sex crimes. Last week, J.P. Morgan sued its own former executive, Jess Staley, alleging that if there was any Epstein-related wrongdoing at the bank, it was done by Staley without the knowledge of other executives there. Now, an attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands said... If Staley is a rogue employee, why isn't Jamie Dimon? And argued, Staley knew, Dimon knew, J.P. Morgan Chase knew. Now, for its part, J.P. Morgan argued that, quote, all roads lead to Staley in this case. And they took issue with the idea that Jamie Dimon had any specific knowledge here. J.P. Morgan has asserted that Dimon has, quote, no recollection, unquote, of ever reviewing the Epstein accounts at the bank. And today the bank sent us a statement saying this. It is unfair for CNBC to report lawyers' unsubstantiated arguments as fact. Now, to be clear, we are reporting that the U.S. Virgin Islands attorney made these claims in open court. The attorney for the U.S. Virgin Islands did not present evidence to prove her claim that Diamond knew about Epstein's crimes, but said in court that there will be numerous documents in this case that go beyond Staley's office, quote, to the executive suite. So let's get some more perspective on who might be on the hook here and what it all could mean for J.P. Morgan and Jamie Diamond. 
Joining me now is NBC News legal analyst Danny Savalos. Danny, it's good to see you here. Uh, lawyers for the USVI seem to be getting closer and closer to Jamie Dimon, but we haven't seen that evidence yet that Dimon knew about Epstein in real time. How do you think this is going to play out? Yeah, I'm a Virgin Islands lawyer, Eamon, and this case is a head-scratcher for me. Keep in mind, the government of the VI has already settled with Epstein's estate. So their theory in this cause of action is that somehow J.P. Morgan, quote, turned a blind eye, and that somehow harmed the government. I can see how it harmed the victims, but it didn't harm the government of the Virgin Islands insofar as I can see. And to allege that J.P. Morgan turned the blind eye, uh, Epstein's Island, Little St. Jeff's, is a couple hundred yards offshore of St. Thomas. You know who looks at that island every day and heard the rumors? The government of the Virgin Islands. So arguably, yeah. if anyone turned a blind eye, it's the GVI and not J.P. Morgan. And J.P. Morgan has been arguing that in court, saying, hey, look, uh, the government at the Virgin Islands knew every single rumor and news report that we knew about. So they were in a position to do something about it and, and didn't really do it. There's a motion to dismiss pending in this case. Where do you think the judge is going to land on that? Do you think he's going to throw out this case or do you think they're going to get to more discovery, which potentially means more emails, which could be more embarrassment for J.P. Morgan? If there's any fact issue for a jury, then the judge has to keep the case alive. But this theory of liability just vexes me. I don't see how the VI was damaged by this. They're suing under their territorial RICO statute. So I understand the elements, but it's hard to make out a claim that the government was actually harmed or and they don't even really appear to flesh that out. And the reality here is that, again, the government is suing J.P. Morgan. And I get that J.P. Morgan has to do a third party complaint or claim against their former employee. They have to cover themselves. I get that part. But the idea that it was in that complaint, by the way, J.P. Morgan then sues J Jess Staley and says, hey, look, we're not admitting that we did anything wrong or we owe anybody any money. But, you know, if a court says we did, then it's Jess Staley's fault. That's what you're talking about. Exactly. Thank you. And that's called an impleader. It's basically a claim against if we're responsible, then it's this guy's fault that we're responsible and right. he owes us money. So that's a classic third party complaint in this case. And J.P. Morgan is using the wise strategy, which is point at somebody else and say it's their fault. But, you know, this is a case that I think has an outside shot at getting dismissed. And Eamon, you talked about yeah. what the GVI knew or didn't know. I, I was never a member of the government of Virgin Islands. And those rumors have been flying around for over a decade uh, about Little St. Jeff's and what went on on that island and what Epstein was up to. So I hardly believe the government didn't have its ear in the same rumors that I did. So a, a big global bank like J.P. Morgan, the last thing they want is salacious allegations, damaging details, emails being read all over the place. Do you think, if you're advising them, uh, they should do everything they can to get out of this case as quickly as possible? Or do you think they should fight this to the last lawyer uh, and say, you know what, we're just not on the hook here? I don't think the government's going to be interested in anything other than a whopper of a settlement. But, you know, J.P. Morgan has the same dilemma that all large companies do. Do they try to settle this for nuisance value, to keep it confidential, to buy secrecy? Or do they fight tooth and nail and send a message that you can't just sue big banks or any other big company when you come up with some 
maybe a bit of a stretch of a theory of legal liability, this may be a case that J.P. Morgan wants to fight. Now, right now, they're already fighting discovery because they say that the government's asking for just too much electronically stored information. They'd have to go back 20 years. So they may even win that battle because right now we're really just in the fishing expedition discovery phase. Yeah, fascinating what that discovery phase is going to turn up. Uh, Danny, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate your analysis. And I'll be back in the next hour to examine what all this means for J.P. Morgan on Last Call with Brian Sullivan starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. Coming up here, it's tough to prepare your portfolio for a black swan event, but what about gray swans? They come out of nowhere, not really. Everyone kind of expects them, but they somehow still take us by surprise. We'll look at the big changes just over the horizon that investors can get ahead of right now when the CNBC special Taking Stock returns. And we're back now with a new report detailing the most polluted cities and countries in the world. A study done by a Swiss air quality company shows that the most polluted countries included Chad, Iraq, and Pakistan. 90% of the global population experienced unhealthy air quality in 2022, and only six countries met the WHO's recommendations for safe air pollutant levels. Now, you can find the full review of the most polluted countries and cities at CNBC.com. And now, what else could go wrong? The past few years have given us our fair share of black swan events, but what about those gray swans? Those are the things that are more or less inevitable based on current trend lines, but somehow they still surprise us when they happen. You could argue this week's banking crisis was a gray swan, but when it happened, we were still kind of all caught off guard. My next guest has been gathering ideas for the next gray swans in our economy and how to invest for them. He's a seed investor and author of Regulatory Hacking, a playbook for startups, Evan Burfield. Evan, it's great to see you here. Uh, you and I first met over 20 years ago. You were ahead of the curve then. You're ahead of the curve now. What are the gray swans that you're watching for right now? Uh, Evan, I'll give you three that I'm paying a lot of attention to. Um, the first is mineral insecurity. Uh, it's, it's pretty well known at this point that we're going to need somewhere between 10x, 20x, 40x, depending on the mineral, more minerals in order to meet our clean energy goals. What I think is, is not fully understood or appreciated that's going to lead to gray swan events is the fact that a tremendous amount of our supply of those minerals is either produced in, uh, in China or the supply chains are deeply dependent on China. As tensions rise, I think we're going to see an awful lot more discussion about how dependent uh, almost every facet of our economy is on, on those supply chains. So we know there's going to be real pressure on the mineral su supply chain. How do you trade that if you're an investor? Uh, I think there's, uh, there's obviously sort of public market opportunities to trade it. Um, I, I'm probably more interested in the longer term aspects of this. These, these might not hit for five, 10 years. Yeah. But I think what you're going to see is a huge shift uh, away from a lot of the current production centers. You have tremendous uh, untapped reserves in Latin America, for example, Australia. Uh, but you're also going to see a lot of technological innovation, uh, microbial mining, phyto mining, uh, deep earth mining. Uh, you got a lot of technology companies that have seen very little venture capital during this last sort of wave that are going to become really important. So it's a problem, and there are solutions out there. Yep. What's your next one? Uh, aquifer depletion. Yeah. Uh, two largest aquifers in the U.S., two most important ones, the Ogallala Aquifier under the Great Plains, uh, the Central Valley Aquifier in California, uh, running Boy, out of water by 20, so 2050. much about the drought in California. I mean, it's unbelievable what's happening out there. And, and yet we're still getting all of our winter vegetables and our fresh strawberries because the water isn't actually coming 
from the rivers, the water is coming for the agriculture from under the ground, and that's running out. So your theory is, like, that's a problem we know is coming. It's absolutely coming. Right? So, again, if you're an investor, how do you get ahead of that? Again, I think you're going to see a tremendous shift away from kind of the, the results of the third industrial agriculture, the third agricultural revolution to the fourth, which is going to be regenerative agriculture. Yeah. Uh, uses a tenth as much water, much more nutrient food, rich food, much less chemical inputs. How do you trade that? Big implications for the current chemical industry, but also a lot of new technologies coming to bear. I actually asked the team uh, working on the show tonight if there's any way to trade this in the public markets. I said there's an ETF out there uh, on, on water, which I didn't know. I didn't know that was even a thing, but apparently you can go Absolutely. out there and buy water. Absolutely. Uh, you got a third one. Third one, uh, I, I think this is more of a bevy of, of baby gray swans. I think we're going to see a series of crises that are going to... That doesn't sound good. We're never going to agree that the, the sort of Washington consensus neoliberalism is dead, but I think we are going to see a series of crises that are going to each time ratchet up industrial policies in the U.S. and in Europe. We're going to see much more government-directed R&D, much more rise of export controls, uh, much more activity in deep tech the subsidies. The crisis you're talking about, is that political or is that it's economic the, it's the intersection and the government's of, response? It's the intersection of a series of technologies, AI plus augmented reality, AI plus biology, AI plus drones and robotics that are uh, incredibly promising and powerful and dangerous combined with geopolitical tensions. And so you're going to see huge government response? Absolutely. How do you invest that? Oh, I think you're seeing, I think you're already seeing a, a huge shift away from, I, I think we're going to look at this banking crisis in, in the long term as not a banking crisis, but the moment when the sort of 30-year arc of internet investment was truly dead. And things like what Josh Wolf is doing with Lux Capital, yeah. really long-term deep tech investing, very different style of investing. You're not investing on getting to barriers, uh, to, to moats and network effects as fast as possible. You're investing in true technological innovation. I first met you at the dawn of the dot-com era, and now I'm <laughs> sitting here at, with you at the end of the internet. It is, era. is that what you're saying? Yeah, in, a sen in essence, yes. Yeah, so the end of the beginning, the beginning of God knows what. Yeah, I think so. All right, Evan Burfield, thanks so much for being here. Thank really you. appreciate your time. And that does it for us. Last Call with Brian Sullivan starts right now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.